Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, sir, uh, you sign your name right here, and we're good to go. Well, there we are. And now some ID? I, I thought you said we were good to go. Oh, we are. We are. Yep, yep, yep. It's just a formality. But I don't have any ID. Oh. Uh, at least not with that name on it. Ah, uh, what do you mean? I mean the name there, the, uh-huh. the one I just signed. Uh-huh. It's not my real name. You're not Arnold Ziffel? Look, you've heard of Paul McCartney, right? Oh, yes. Well, when he used to sign into hotels, he used the name Paul Ramone. Oh. So as not to raise any suspicions. Uh And when the band the Ramones were looking for a name, Uh that's where they got their inspiration. Oh. And what does that have to do with our little transaction? Well, I'm a famous musician, too. Ah, No, you're not. You're someone who's trying to get out of paying for a meal with a credit card. No, really. Haven't you ever heard of musicians using pseudonyms? That's what I'm doing. It's a security thing, see? Oh. But you're not a musician, and you're not in a band. I might be one day. Security! But but I'm buying a guitar tomorrow. Uh-huh. Y- you'll see. Someday I'll be famous. Sure. And I'll have to use a fake name. And you think I'll come back to this crappy place? Thank you, Mr. Ziffo. That's not a pseudonym. That's called fraud. This is about pseudonyms. Listen. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is a show all about fake names. I'm sure we could spend an hour talking about how people like Courtney Love and Elton John and Madonna use fake names in hotel registers. Or we could go into how Bono's real name is Paul Hewson and Dead Mouse has Joel Zimmerman on his driver's license and that Lord is really Ella Yelich O'Connor. We could talk about how singers and bands sometimes perform gigs under fake names to throw off the press. The Foo Fighters, Arcade Fire, Metallica, Arctic Monkeys, Radiohead, Franz Ferdinand, R.E.M., Kaiser Chiefs, Led Zeppelin, The Clash, and hundreds of others have done just that. But no, we are actually going to kick it up a big notch with this program. We're only interested in real bands, big bands, who have released albums under fake identities, or at the very least, have tried to obscure their identities for whatever reason. They're side projects, but very special side projects. Now, the first band to really do this was the Beatles. 
On June 1st, 1967, a new album appeared credited to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. That was the Beatles, of course, and they really didn't try very hard to hide that fact. But for that record, the Beatles assumed the role of this fake band. It was the world's worst secret when it came to band pseudonyms, but it was a band pseudonym. But let's fast forward 10 years to a studio where a geeky young singer-songwriter was struggling to record his debut album. He desperately wanted to quit his job as a computer operator at Elizabeth Arden Cosmetics to go into music full-time. You may now know that back in the early days, Elvis Costello had a crack backup band called The Attractions, and yes, he did. But that band didn't come together until the second album. It is the first album that I would like to address. This is a bit convoluted, but follow me here. The first label to sign Elvis was Stiff Records, and Jake Riviera, the head of the label, wanted to get something out fast to capitalize on this whole punk thing that was happening. But Elvis didn't have a band, and there wasn't time to advertise and audition and rehearse players. They needed to make do with something, anything, now. So Riviera found a band called Clover, who had come over from America and were pretty much broke as they tried to tour the UK. Naturally, they were game to make some extra money. So Jake said to Elvis, uh, show these Yanks your songs and guys, uh, you know, do your best to make these acoustic songs sound more angry. So they did. And while the band worked with Elvis through a series of late night sessions in a tiny studio in the Islington area of London through late 1976 and early 1977, Clover's singer, who had absolutely nothing to do, just hung around reading the newspaper. When the album was done, Elvis got down to the business of finding a permanent band and Clover went home. Now, the members of Clover were never credited on the original release of that first album, My Aim is True, because they had a contractual issue. This is because there was already a British band called Clover, so the American Clover tried to use the name The Shamrocks to avoid getting in trouble. So, what we have here is an anonymous band working in England under a pseudonym. But here's where it gets interesting. Clover broke up in 1978. One guy joined the Doobie Brothers before quitting music to become a chiropractor, and another guy wrote the song 8675309 Jenny for Tommy Two-Tone. And two guys, plus that singer who had been hanging around in the lobby, formed a new band called Huey Lewis in the News. So, yes, who we hear playing on one of the fiercest debut records of all time is essentially a Doobie Brother and Huey Lewis in the News. Elvis Costello, backed up by a band that's not listed in the credits of his My Aim is True album, but in fact was an American band named Clover, playing in the UK under the name The Shamrocks, and later they would evolve into Huey Lewis and the News. Like I said, I, I know it's convoluted and a very torturous way to go, but I promise everything else from here on in will be, you know, very straightforward. For example, I want to talk about a band called Cult Hero. 
In 1979, Robert Smith was having lineup issues in The Cure, especially in the bass player position. He'd found a new guy named Simon Gallup, who seemed to be a good fit, certainly much better than the guy who was currently playing bass for the band. But how could he be certain? Well, why not do a complete and full mock-up? In secret, Robert and Simon recorded and released a single together, getting help from assorted friends, including two of Robert's sisters. The A-side of this experimental 7-inch was called I'm a Cult Hero, and to make sure that no one knew what was going on, Robert elected not to sing on the song. So he drafted a guy named Frank Bell for vocals. Uh, Frank was Robert's mailman. The single came out on Fiction Records and promptly disappeared from sight. However, it was mission accomplished. Robert found that he liked working with Simon, and guitarist Porl Thompson, who had been in an earlier version of The Cure, was brought in, and now we had a new lineup. I thought you might like to hear this song from a fake band that was actually designed as a Cure job application. That's essentially the cure trading as cult hero with Robert Smith's postman on lead vocals. The song is I'm a Cult Hero, and that got a Canadian single release in 1982. Nobody knew. When we come back, a two-record album fakeout by one of Britain's best post-punk pop bands. This is a program on what I call pseudonym bands, well-known groups that have found a reason to release music under another name. Now, XTC was a pretty prolific band in their day, releasing at least an album a year. But in 1985, they decided to try something different. They'd release an album on schedule, but they wouldn't do it under the name XTC. They came up with the moniker The Dukes of Stratosphere, and everybody in the band adopted fake names. Leader Andy Partridge was Sir John Johns. Bass player and multi-instrumentalist Colin Moulding became The Red Curtain. Keyboardist Dave Gregory adopted the name Lord Cornelius Plum, and drummer E.I.E.I. E. Owen was actually Ian Gregory. The producer was somebody named Swami Anand Nagara, and that was actually John Lucky, the guy that would later go on to produce The Stone Roses. But why this charade? XTC wanted to try something a little retro, stuff that was outside their normal post-punk quirkiness. They'd become fascinated with 60s psychedelia, old Pink Floyd, The Birds, Jefferson Airplane, Revolver-era Beatles, The Beach Boys. They were tired of writing serious pop songs, and they just wanted to have some fun. And because this was the old days of the music industry, there was plenty of money to go around. And if a star act wanted to release an album under a fake name using made-up identities just for fun, okay. It started with an EP called 25 O'Clock in 1985. Then came Sonic Sunspots, both spelled with silent P's, in 1987. And that second record actually gained some traction. It got some great reviews and even spun off a single that did well at alternative radio in North America. Pretty much everybody got the joke, but not everyone, which was still fine. The Dukes of Stratosphere, the fake band propagated by XTC through a couple of albums in the 1980s. 
Like I said, record companies let you do that kind of thing back then. But sometimes record companies don't want you to do anything. And that's the story behind this next band, or at least part of the story. Trent Reznor was frustrated. He had signed a deal with a Chicago label called TVT Records. Label head Steve Gottlieb thought he was getting a Depeche Mode-like electronic band. What he ended up with was Nine Inch Nails. This music was way too heavy for Steve. In fact, he hated the music. He called Pretty Hate Machine an abortion. What followed was an ugly and protracted legal battle that kept Trent Reznor from recording anything under his name or as Nine Inch Nails. And here's where the pseudonym band comes in. Trent met up with Al Jorgensen of Ministry. He'd started a goofy side project called 1000 Homo DJs as a way of releasing some Ministry outtakes while keeping things separate from his main band. All the credits on this group's album went to Lux slash Pan, fake names for Jorgensen and his songwriting partner Paul Barker. Every contributing member had fake names too. Al was Buck Satan. Barker was Officer Agro. We Willie Reefer was Ministry's drummer William Rieflin. Al asked Trent if he would like to get involved, and because he was so bored, he jumped at the chance. But given that he was legally prevented from recording anything with anyone under the terms of his TVT record deal, he didn't want any kind of credit. But that didn't stop him. Here's Trent singing with Ministry in their pseudonymic form, 1000 Homo DJs. Practically every one of the top 40 records being played on every radio station in the United States is a communication to the children to take a trip, to cop out, to groove. The psychedelic jackets on the record album have their own hidden symbols and messages as well as all the lyrics of all the top rock songs. And they all sing the same refrain. It's fun to take a trip. Put acid in your veins. That's Trent Reznor singing for what's essentially ministry, but billed as 1,000 Homo DJs. It's their cover of the Black Sabbath song, Supernaut. If that sounds different from the Supernaut that you've been used to, that's because that's the real thing, and not the re-recorded version featuring Al Jorgensen on vocals. Trent got nervous about his legal situation with TVT and asked that his vocals be removed. Naturally, a bootleg of the original circulated for years, but now there's a legitimate release on a Wax Tracks box set from 1994. This next fake band is probably the best known of the bunch. In 1995, U2 was on a roll. They had an idea about recording a soundtrack for a film called The Pillow Book, but for whatever reason, that didn't work out. But producer Brian Eno said, look it, we started, we got some good ideas going, why don't we just continue to work on this project and say that we're writing music for some film? Okay, the film doesn't exist, but let's think of this as a creative exercise. Wait, said U2. This is very un-U2-ish. We can't release this. So Eno said, all right, fine. Release it under a fake name. And so they did. They called themselves Passengers, and their album was released on November 7th, 1995. About half of it was instrumental. Nighttime music, according to U2. Now, U2 fans were confused. Who was this Ben Orion and C.S. Bofop who wrote the liner notes? Well, both were fake names given to Brian Eno. And the deeper you go into the liner notes, the more in-jokes you'll find. 
There was just one official single, and it featured, of all people, Italian opera star Luciano Pavarotti. This song took its name from the fake film for which it was written. It's called Miss Sarajevo. You too, but uh, not you too. We're supposed to refer to them as passengers for that 1995 release, Original Soundtracks 1. Can you imagine a band doing something like that today? But like I've been saying, back in the 90s, there was still lots of money floating around in the music industry. And if your artist had a creative whim, you indulged it. It wasn't that much of a success, although it did reach number 15 on the Canadian album charts and number 12 in the UK. In the US... Not so much. Just number 76. I have three more pseudonymic bands. Okay, maybe maybe two, because one we're not entirely sure about. We're spending this hour looking at bands who have released albums under fake names, and we need to spend a little time looking closely at Green Day. In 2003, an indie label based out of the Bay Area of California issued an album called Money Money 2020 by a group called The Network. There were six people on the band, Fink, Van Gogh, The Snoo, Z, Captain Underpants, and Balducci. No idea who these people are, but it's widely suspected that all three members of Green Day are somehow involved. Now, Billy Joe Armstrong has denied this. Green Day has nothing to do with the network, he says. But let's look at the evidence. It is a fact that Billy Joe has written songs under the alias Wilhelm Fink, the network's indie label, Adeline Records, is owned by Billy Joe. And if you sift through some of the lyrics on the network album, you'll find indisputable biographical references that lead right back to Billy Joe Armstrong. The snoo has to be Trey Cool. Just look at Snoo's nose. That's, that's, that's Trey. That leaves Mike Durnt as Van Gogh. The rest of the network is made up of friends and employees of Green Day. The network's website is registered to... Green Day Inc. And the network did play live, but just once. Opening for, you guessed it, Green Day. It was October 13th, 2005. Since then, though, nothing has been heard from them. So, is the network Green Day in disguise? The music is a little different from what Green Day normally does, but, uh, oh, come on. This isn't Billy Joe singing? The network, which may or may not, but probably is, Green Day, performing under a pseudonym. The song is Rochambeau from the one and only network album, Money Money 2020 from 2003. This leads me to Foxborough Hot Tubs. This is definitely Green Day. It's their garage band side project, something they did with a couple of friends to blow off some creative steam after the whole American Idiot ride. And the band is totally transparent about this project. The only similarity between Foxborough Hot Tubs and Green Day is that we are the same band, said Billy Joe Armstrong. So, uh, I guess that settles it. And then they went on to perform live and unmasked. The name? 
Well, it's from a hot tub store where the band used to sneak off and drink when they were young. And just getting back to the network for a second, it's interesting that when Green Day performed as Foxborough Hot Tubs, they sometimes covered songs by, yes, the network. There's been one album from the Hot Tubs, a 2008 release entitled Stop, Drop, and Roll, and it turned into something of an alternative radio hit, at least for a while. This was a single called The Pedestrian. Green Day, and we know that's Green Day for sure because they've admitted it, performing under their pseudonym Foxborough Hot Tubs from 2008. All right, one more fake band, and this is probably the weirdest of the bunch. Back before Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow decided on their conscious uncoupling, they were a very happy couple. When she was expecting Little Apple, the band got together for a goofy song and video under the name The Nappies. All four members of Coldplay are here. Will, Chris, Johnny, and Guy. But there's somebody else in a curly red wig. Not really sure who that is. But the guy in the wig introducing the video is definitely Sir George Martin. You have to see the video for full effect. But this is definitely Coldplay, and they're performing as the Nappies. Uh, the song is called I'm Your Baby's Daddy. And uh, I'm really sorry about this. Hello. I would like to introduce you to a great new band. I wish I could say that I produced them myself, but I can honestly say that I've never heard anything quite like it. I hope you enjoy it. The Nappies. That's not quite as bad as that horrible song, You're Having My Baby, but it's, it's kind of close. It's the Nappies, actually Coldplay, with a song Chris Martin wrote to then-wife Gwyneth Paltrow when she was expecting their first child. They um, might have wanted to hide their identity a little bit better than that. So there's our list of real bands who have released material under fake names in order to hide their real identities. Most of the time, the bands do this just for a laugh, but as we saw, sometimes there were legal reasons, too. Now, now, remember, for it to make this list, it's got to be a very special side project, one where the artist makes an attempt to obscure their true identity. It might be a very poor attempt, one that they know will be exposed right away, but, you know, they still have to at least try, you know? Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 